Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman, and oh, I have just loved this author for a long time. So I'm just so delighted that Namwali Serpel could join us today. She was born in Lusaka, Zambia, and lives in New York. Her debut novel, The Old Drift, was named one of the 100 notable books of 2019 by the New York Times Book Review and one of Time Magazine's 100 Must Read Books of the Year. She's currently a professor of English at Harvard, and her new novel is called The Furrows. Welcome, Namwali. Thank you so much, Marius. I love that even in the marketing copy, we we are drawn to this these two sentences um, that your narrator C um, kind of says over and over again. I don't want to tell you how it happened. I want to tell you how it felt. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about writing a novel in which feelings are so much more important to pin down, I guess, than than the facts are. Yes, thank you so much. Um, I've had interest in the question of literary uncertainty for a long time. As a PhD student, I found myself returning to books that left me feeling unsettled, sometimes just straight up puzzled, not knowing what had happened, not knowing how it had happened or whether a character existed. So books like Toni Morrison's Beloved, uh, Thomas Pynchon's The Crying of Lot 49, uh, Henry James's The Turn of the Screw, and even something like Bretty Spinellis' American Psycho, where a lot of doubt is cast at a mm -hmm. crucial point in that novel as to whether or not he's even committing the murders that we're reading these graphic descriptions of. And one of the reasons I chose to write my dissertation and then my first book about uncertainty was because I find uncertainty very difficult to deal with in my life. I'm someone who struggles with that, especially when it comes to moral questions, but also aesthetic questions and political questions. And I make a lot of lists. I make a lot of <laughs> calendars and to-do lists and plans. And But I found myself really compelled by uncertainty in literature. And a lot of what I was trying to do there was trying to think about what the aesthetic effects, what the... Um, affective effects or feeling effects and what the ethical effects of literary uncertainty were. Um, what, what, is, what do these novels afford for us as experiences uh, rather than as sort of transmissions of, of a, a certain message or a testimony of a certain story? And so I became really interested in trying to figure out a way to structure a novel that was oriented exactly in that direction, which is how to, how to make you feel something uh, with the structure of a text rather than know something. Yeah, it's almost like a, a poem, like a really beautiful long poem. That um, was my hope. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons we chose to subtitle it an elegy is to evoke that poetic um, tradition. I, I do feel though, like as someone who very much values facts, it's it's a challenge to to enter the world of your book and be okay with that uncertainty and and the not knowing. And um, tell me about that, about making readers feel a little <laughs> discombobulated. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, it's it, I, in some ways it feels like a privilege um, to be allowed to write a book like this. 
when you look at the history of literature and the books that um, have stayed with us, many of the reference points that we have for the novel uh, as such, you find that actually the, the long history of the novel is very interested in these uh, forms of disturbing or unsettling readers' expectations, even if it's manipulating your expectations in one direction and then thwarting that expectation. Um, and even you know, traditional novels, so-called traditional novels like Jane Eyre, for example, are really interested in constantly undermining what it is you think you know about what's happening to Jane. And as we move into the modernist period in the early 20th century, you know, writers like Faulkner, like Virginia Woolf, um, Samuel Beckett, they're all playing in exactly this mode. It's something that's, uh, to me as, a, as you know, a literature student and now professor, it's so familiar to me that I often, I'm actually surprised by how uncomfortable contemporary readers are with it because it seems like we've been doing this for a really long time yeah. um, and also it seems to me that a lot of tv and film has been uh, playing with this particularly repetition right so yeah. I think part of what we're talking about in this novel in particular is that I repeat certain events from a different point of view I iterate them so it's like well there's one version of how my main character loses her brother and then there's another there's one version of how she meets a man who resembles her brother and then there's another right and this kind of uh, use of repetition to destabilize the reader is something we see in uh, the affair that uh, Showtime show about adultery um, Russian doll which continually repeats right that's the main character's death uh, played by Natasha Leon so it to me it's it's something or even a, I may destroy you um it's a, which is yes. I think yeah. an, a wonderful um show that is using some of these same techniques to to destabilize us so to me it felt like something that I I could rely on my reader to 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 cotton on to what was happening pretty soon, um, pretty, uh, you know, early on in the narrative. And if you continue to hear Cassandra telling you, pay attention to what you're feeling, not to what's happening. Um, my hope was that the reader would be carried along through and in that way undergo uh, the experience that I was really setting out to depict, which is the experience of grief. Yeah. And you, you show us really how grief kind of disrupts a linear timeline that it's uh and and in life and also in in this book from a craft perspective I'm wondering if you could talk about that a little bit yeah I I wanted to capture the way that despite our desperate attempts to construct a trajectory for grief the five stages or the seven stages um the desire to achieve closure or healing. Uh, and it's something that even though, you know, uh, I've written this book that radically is moving against that idea, um, I still have people ask me if the writing of the book gave me closure or healing in my own mourning process, which I think is really interesting because it's there's this real desire for stability. And I think it's very, uh, fitting or apt in this particular moment. We've had a very, very destabilizing decade, yes. I would say. And so I can understand why people want to achieve some kind of closure or healing. But my sense of mourning, of grief, as I've experienced it, and I've, as, as I've spoken to others about it, is that it's not something that has a 
teleology from you know sadness to to closure that moves through time in that steady way rather it's something that constantly erupts or disrupts um, the smallest thing can make you remember the person you've lost and in this case I intensify that uncertainty about grief by making the loss itself ambiguous did this little boy die or has he disappeared has he been kidnapped and also showing the different reactions of Cassandra's or C's family members to that loss her father responds one way her mother responds a totally different way and Cassandra responds a third way and then by comparing that family a bourgeois family in the suburbs of Baltimore with the kinds of grief or mourning or loss that are experienced by two black men who are living a very different class position are one of them is in prison, one is living on the street. And so trying to think about grief from all these different angles, again, destabilizes our sense of, of what it is or how to get over it. Bamba's mission is simple. Make the most comfortable clothes ever and match every item sold with an equal item donated. So when you buy Bombas, you're also giving to someone in need. Bombas designed their socks, shirts, and underwear to be the clothes you can't wait to put on every day. Everything they make is soft, seamless, tagless, and has a cozy feel. There's a pair of Bomba socks for everything you do. For me, with uh, strangely small feet, I love that there is an option to buy a smaller size. Size small, adult, Bombas, life changer. Bombas no-show socks are designed for comfort while being specifically engineered to never fall down. So let your ankles be free to soak up the sun. Bombas t-shirts are made with thoughtful design features like invisible seams, soft fabrics, and the perfect weight so they hang just right. Bombas underwear is so breathable and fits so well, it feels like you're wearing nothing at all in a good way. And did you know that socks, underwear, and t-shirts are the three most requested clothing items at homeless shelters? That's why Bombas donates one for every item you buy. So far, Bombas customers like you have helped donate over 50 million items of essential clothing. Go to bombas.com slash Maris and use code Maris for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M. BAS.com slash Maris and use code Maris at checkout. Bombas.com slash Maris, code Maris. Yeah, there's a line. Um, of course, you take us through. Cassandra uh, has a number of therapists, which only makes sense. Um, but one says, you know, grief will wrap its arms around your neck. It's not mm -hmm. like. A um, or it doesn't creep like a worm or fly like an arrow. <laughs> yeah. It erupts. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I, and I, I think there are, you can think of the long tradition of literature in some ways as versions of elegy. There's so many different uh, texts that I'm teaching a humanities course now, an intro humanities course at Harvard. And we, we just read uh, the Odyssey. And Telemachus, who is Odysseus's son, doesn't know if his father has gone away or if his father's dead. Um, we just read Oedipus and, you know, thinking about what it is to have killed your own father and how <laughs> and, and then to discover that. And we just read Hamlet, which to me is, is really a play about people 
um, many different children mourning their fathers. And so I'm, I think there's this curious way that we're constantly grappling with this question of, of how we can actually honor the dead or um, help help to reconcile ourselves to death. And one of the issues I think is that grief um, is never quite over. It has this quality of, of continually erupting. It doesn't map onto the narratives that we want to have of growth or development. And, and another uh, therapist at, at one point uh, wants Cassandra to practice lifespan integration, quote unquote, um, which is kind of when you make a story out of your life with a plot that makes sense, as if that was a thing that we could control. Um, and the idea of being able to kind of smooth out those moments of trauma um, to make the, the, the passage of time more seamless somehow. Yes, I mean, I think I think the fundamental aspect of that therapy and you know, all the other therapists that Cassandra sees uh, is that there's, it, in the end, it's a fiction, right? Mm -hmm. This is what this is what Cassandra knows. She's like, this is so. It's like it's like a story that I'm being asked to to write of my life, and narratives are very helpful for us in that sense. They mm -hmm. do help us. Um, construct some kind of causality uh, to what otherwise would be a kind of chaotic mess of contingent events. But at the same time, it is a fiction. And I think that constructedness of that was something I was really interested in trying to, to play with. We get a similar in the novel construction of the fiction of a romantic plot that in a certain kind of sense, I build up only to, to tear down. <laughs> uh, Absolutely. And I, I, I'm trying to figure out how to talk about this in, in a way that, mm. um, but as an adult, Cassandra meets a man who is named Wayne. Yes. Which is the name of her little brother as well. And we can leave it at that. Um, and we see her in, encountering versions of her brother throughout the book. Um, and then we see her have really hot sex <laughs> <laughs> with this man, with this man. And, um, we are, or I can only speak for myself. <laughs> um, that was another level of confusion for sure. And, and, and yeah. it certainly makes a lot of sense. Like for, for anyone who's ever had a sexual dream about someone that, <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think the, you know, the incest taboo is very powerful. And, um, you know, it's, it's, I've been trying to explain to people that in the same way that there's this long literary tradition about mourning, there's also a very long tradition of incest. I mean, I just taught Oedipus, right? Yes, yeah. Um, but, but in Faulkner as well, um, The Bluest Eye, which we often think of as a, a novel about, a, you know, a little girl who wants to have blue eyes. It's also about uh, that little girl being raped by her father and being impregnated by him. And Morrison does something that very few people talk about um, these days, which is she takes on his perspective during the rape. It's, it's, 
Humbert Humbert level of you know intense identification in a very graphic sex scene and and she did she did this in her first novel you know it's, it's sort of throwing down the gauntlet about what she has access to as a writer and what she can describe in all its horror in all of its taboo taboo but also just kind of horrific violence and to a certain extent I think my aim was to make the reader feel this kind of shock and um, to feel really deeply disturbed. The, the sex scene between uh, Cassandra and this man, I, I literally interrupted with memories of her, of her little brother, of their childhood. It's supposed to be disturbing in that fashion. And the, the one revision that uh, I conceded with my editors who were as disturbed as, as any reader would be by the scene was to make it very clear as soon as possible that this man is not in fact her brother <laughs> in the novel. <laughs> and so, you know, when we switch into his perspective, there's versions of the novel where you didn't find out for chapters and chapters that this man has, you know, did not grow up with Cassandra that did not like have, has a different life altogether. Um, but I made it much clearer in uh, in the, the the version that got published. By the the first time we meet him, she he he refers to her brother as actually the person he's seeking out, and so we become what we learn is that he, he Cassandra and her mother are essentially all looking for the same man, and it's very unclear whether that man even exists, and so that you know part of what I was trying to to get at and um, in thinking about. The novel is the way that the longing for someone or the desire to find someone, the seeking someone that you've lost or someone who deeply affected your life can sometimes yield a business model. In the case of her mother, she <laughs> right. starts a foundation for missing children. It can yield incestuous longing and perversion, as in Cassandra's case, or it can yield a kind of murderous desire for, for revenge. And I was really interested in how grief warps our sense of desire or uh, our desire to seek out others um, even as much as it seems like it's this very beautiful dignified thing it actually can really mess you up mm -hmm. and and even I thought the choice to switch perspectives um towards the end of part one the, the book is told in two yes. parts was helpful in in orienting us to to what might change yes I think because you know when you're with a character for so long and of course you know you want to pull your your reader in so you know I try to make Cassandra relatable I try to give a sense of pathos to what she's going right. through she's very wounded by the way her family has re res responded to the loss of her brother she's also in mourning herself and so you identify very closely with her and that's i when I revised the novel, I moved it into the first person to intensify that. But when we switch to the perspective of this other person, we see her from the outside. Yeah. And part of what I wanted to give you is the sense that we're, we're all inside our own movies in our head to a certain extent. Um, but what that looks like from the outside might be just different. And I my hope is that you can see just how unreliable her perspective has been when you see her uh, from the from the other side, especially how blind she is or how, um, I think I wanna rephrase that, sorry, uh, Maris, if we sure. can, um, how, uh, in, how unable she is to perceive her class position 
and how much that has affected the way that she and her family have mourned the loss of her brother. One of the other things that that really gripped me about her experience and being inside her head is that you you have word choices and metaphors and things that really kind of evoke a more childish kind of memory. Um, I, I love there's a line about her seeing her father at the beach and um it look her father's stomach looks like it would speak in chuckles, which yes. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to I, I because I can't be like how'd you do that, but um, <laughs> but but yeah. it is really evocative in a way that even someone who hasn't studied literature can kind of wrap their head mm -hmm. around. Yeah, I mean, the hope always is is that um, that the language will capture you, you know, regardless of the the kind of larger scale ideas or narrative structures that are I'm working with. Because I could, you know, I could have written an essay about repetition and grief and um, and the way that it pulls you in and the way that it warps your mind. I, I could, I mean, we will be publishing, you know, this version of this interview where I'm explaining these ideas that I have, yeah. but in order to get the reader to feel them, you, you do have to pull them in with, with language and with, with characterization. And, and that to me is the, the great joy of, of writing. It's like, I can have all this retrospective analysis, but at the end of the day, you know, thinking really hard about how to convey um, the look of a of a middle aged man's belly is much more delightful in the in the moment. It's great. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about if this is a novel very much about uncertainty and destabilization. Are there certain facts that that you needed to stick with as a writer, like? There are certain things in the story that Cassandra tells over and over again that are consistent. Yes. Um, tell me, tell me about restraint, or if there, if there mm. were any. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they absolutely were, and I think there's um, a a poetic aspect to this as well, in the sense of of a meter or a rhyme scheme. One of the things that I do to make it clear that we're with the same Cassandra and with, with the same little boy that she loses is including particular words that are distinctive, that stand out. Mm -hmm. um, and so the word splummishing, for example, which I use to refer to the sound of um, Wayne running into the sea, but also later the sound of uh, Cassandra when she's urinating in the toilet, right? I'm using the same uh, slightly off language to remind the reader that there's a repetition happening here, right? But at the same time, there are also certain fundamentals that never change. She's always 12, he's always seven. They're always alone together in a, in a, in a, um, in a situation that is routine, right? They're, they, they're going to the beach together. They're walking to school together. They're going to the park together. And so I, I make it very clear in each case, you know, I say this was allowed, um, right. that I, I would be taking care of my little brother. And that's to intensify, you know, to a certain extent, the, 
um, the kind of ambiguity around, you know, how responsible Cassandra is for the loss of her brother. She's 12, right? Is that like, should she really have been left alone to take care of a seven-year-old? It's like, well, yeah, that's actually not that unusual. Right. And if it's something routine, then it would make sense that her parents weren't there. So how guilty should her mother really feel? How guilty should Cassandra really feel, right? So part of the, you know, fixing on those facts about their situation was really important to maintain that ambiguity. At the same time, there's also the very fact that they're a mixed race family, right? They have a black father and a white mother. And I even talk a little bit about their uh, parents' love story, how they how they met, how they encountered um, each other. And I tell the story through the father. And I note that he, he varies the story somewhat. His version is slightly different from their mother's, right? Even though she tells that story all the time. And so even within that kind of family lore, which again, stays consistent across the novel, there is that slight uncertainty or variation, right? So, I mean, some of what I'm interested in is like, goes back to what the modernists were interested in, which is just the slippage of memory. You know, how, how do we remember things and how differently those look from inside one perspective and, and inside another? Another aspect, um that we get, especially in the second part, um, is the idea of different timelines interacting, intersecting. Mm -hmm. um, tell me about that a little bit. Yeah, so I, um, I think there's been a lot of interest in uh, parallel universes and multiverses in narrative recently. And I have, I read, read a lot of science fiction and um, write science fiction myself. And, you know, everything everywhere all at once, for example, as a film. Um, my uh, friend Yael uh, Goldstein has just written a wonderful multiverse novel about motherhood that's coming out next year that um, I really adored she actually understands the physics of these things in a way that I you know I have to I have to read the science and I can hold it in my head for five minutes and then it vanishes again um, physics is not my my scientific uh, expertise as much as biology or microbiology is but this you know I this is a way of thinking about memory and consciousness in my novel more more than it is something that is sort of happening at the level of physics or or the universe so it's more like a Borgesian garden of forking paths or like the kind of playing with time that you see in a movie like Memento where you know it's I'm much more interested in how multiplicity and possibility or we might call it like the subjunctivity of, of mm -hmm. life, you know, the subjunctive tense being like what could or would or should happen. Uh, I'm much more interested in that as a quality of human consciousness than necessarily how it would manifest in the physical world. Just not to say that I won't write a time travel story someday because I, <laughs> I really probably will. Um, but in this case, I was more interested in thinking about how that model of time really helps us 
understand what it is to live, what it is to, to have perspective. Um, and again, in, the, in, in a very, very straightforward sense, the easiest way to understand why my novel is so confusing is to think of it as a modernist novel. It's sure. it's really engaging with Virginia Woolf and James Joyce and and all of those writers. I'm trying very much to um, go back to those roots of my literary training, and also the my enjoyment of what I think of as another modernist genre, although it started in the in the 19th century, which is crime fiction. And mm. um, in particular, the work of Edgar Allan Poe and the, the Gothic, but also the American Gothic, but also the, the notion of the doppelganger, which the first short story written in English um, that features a doppelganger is called William Wilson. And that's by, by Poe. So I was also thinking about um, the modernist tradition, the low modernist tradition as one might, one might put it. Mm. Um, and I, and I do think that's another area where, um, in terms of this, this man, whether his name is Wayne, is it, or if it's Will, or who's who, or what's what, um, you do have scenes in which then you start, like, as you were saying about American Psycho, even, like, that you kind of have to imagine what if there's just the one what does that yes. look like how yes. did he get those marks then <laughs> you know like yes that. yes yeah I, and I you know one of the things I, I was interested you know I was I always joke that the, the this part of the novel is my is my attempt not to write a doppelganger tale but a doppelbanger tale and because these are you know there's there's um young men who are living on the street and selling drugs and involved in violence of various kinds. But I was, I was interested in um, tapping a, the, the tradition of the black Gothic, which you see, you know, uh, writers like Victor Laval playing on really beautifully, but, you know, it has a long tradition. And um, one of the short stories that was very inspiring for this part of the novel is Edward P. Jones's uh, Old Girls, Old Boys, which is an amazing book and is also a ghost story, but is also a story about prison. And there's a, there's a much longer tradition of black Gothic, black horror, um, black noir, um, than I think we tend to think about. And we can find it even in, uh, in the tradition of hip hop that informs the, the novel. I was, there's a lot of references to Hitchcock, obviously, because I'm interested in, in noir and mystery, but I was really pleased the other day, someone um, uh, was um, referring to uh, a song by Ghetto Boys, the name of which I'm trying to now remember. It's, so this, this is another part that I hope we can edit. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, it's called my, my mind playing tricks on me. That's what it's called. I, that's I, he says it over and over again. I just wanted to make sure it wasn't just playing tricks on me. And uh, that's that's this is a like a hip hop song from you know the the nineties, um, and it's got this you know same quality of being haunted by your own life on the streets in such a way that it, you really don't know if you are encountering a real person or encountering a ghost. Um, the way that the 
the kind of uncanniness of the doubling of black men that happens in a society that treats them as exchangeable with each other, essentially. Um, and you see this not just in the subjection of black men to violence, but also in the way that they, the, the constant mistaking black men for each other that happens in the carceral system. And so trying to access how that would feel from the inside as a kind of, of haunting or a kind mm. of um, being pursued by your own double is something that I really wanted to, to get at from the, from the inside. It's, it's, it's been very interesting to me though to, you know, I think people are much more familiar with the modernist tradition that I'm playing with in the first half of the book, um, the Virginia Woolf part, yeah. than they are with this um, black male tradition in some sense. Um, Walter Mosley, you know, all of these, Chester Himes, all of these um, writers who've really informed uh, that part of the book. And so I'm, I'm really glad that you asked about it because it gives me the opportunity to explain some of the um, precedents and, and some of the amazing work that I think really should, should have more play uh, in how we talk about the literary, even something like Iceberg Slim's Pimp was you know, influential on this book. And um, it's, hard to, it, it's hard to imagine, I think, uh, that being immediately recognizable um, in this day and age, but I'm, I'm hoping that by examining it and juxtaposing it with this high literary tradition that more people might follow my footnotes in some sense and, and get back to those texts. Oh, I love that. And, and thank you throughout this interview for giving us such a, a great reading list uh, to go back to. But before we finish, please, yeah. if you'd recommend some books for us. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, so I don't read very much nonfiction um, or history, but I read Howard French's Born in Blackness recently, uh, which is essentially attempting to recenter our understanding of the modern world around Africa and Africans as agents. It's got a kind of subtlety and complexity and depth of historical knowledge that you don't usually find in a book that is also incredibly accessible and readable and actually quite beautifully written. And I think it completely recenters our understanding of the modern world in a way that's very enlightening for those, um, for, for, I think for everybody, I think everyone should read this book. I think it will, it really does help change the conversation. Even for, even when it comes to like small things like how, representative is the new uh, Woman King film when right. it comes to the role of Africans in slavery. It's like, if you read Howard French's book, you'll understand, <laughs> you know, hmm. it's a wonderful, I think it's very informative in that way. And I just happened, I'm writing this book, um, oh, sorry, I'm writing this essay uh, about gender and style. And along the way, uh, I read a novel that I probably won't include in the essay, and so the, but it gives me an opportunity to, to praise it now. Um, and that's a book that was published a, a while ago, but it's Lisa Halliday's Asymmetry. Yeah. And I just adored it. I thought it was wonderful. And I think um, it has this particular structure of working in 
parts. She has three parts, but it, you know, it, she moves between narrators into radically distinct stories that are only very tenuously connected. And so part of, part of it was like, oh, okay, I'm not the only one who's doing this. Um, <laughs> and, but I also felt that what was really brilliant about her style in that book is the patience with which she will set up a set of clues for us that then you you kind of leap to a it's not exactly a punchline it's more like the movements of a of a of a of a joke or um of uh a piece of wit like a pun it's like the parts of the plot harmonize in but like pages and pages and pages later you get a joke or you get a, a um an a notion, a coincidence, a synchronicity that you that you wouldn't necessarily get when you're when you're first reading. So she she instills in the reader a kind of patience um, for that stylistic payoff that I feel like is so masterful because it's it requires you to really just trust that it's that what you're reading is going to eventually you know pay off in that in that beautiful way. Um, it's it's a really really funny book. Um, I think it also has this ob obliquity as a kind of full narrative in that you're trying to work out the connection between the different parts of the book and actively inviting the reader to make those connections. I think, again, is really masterful. She doesn't hand you anything. She doesn't explain anything. Um, she pulls you into the book in the way that I think much of our best literature does so I would I would really highly recommend that book as well oh this I I want to read it again after that <laughs> um, thank you so much Nomwali. uh the furrows out now thank you so much Maris thank you for listening to the Maris review and check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today and please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts <laughs>